Eric Martin was a guest on episode 10 of this show, and I'm pretty excited that he's back. In February this year, he wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post titled, We Need a PBS for the Internet Age. Eric is a graduate student at the Oxford Internet Institute and was a policy advisor at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy under the Obama administration. He also worked as a senior education program manager at the game engine company Unity and was listed on Forbes 30 under 30 in 2018 in the games category. When I read his piece in the post, I immediately started bugging him to join us on the show to say more. I have the feeling that when I look back on the episodes of 2019, this one will land among a handful at the top that really pushed my thinking. Whether or not you agree with his proposal, I hope that you walk away with your own ideas about the responsibility that legislators in the U.S. could one day take for improving the inextricably connected role that the internet plays in our lives and our democracy beyond the whack-a-mole of censorship and regulation. To give you a sense of the ethos that governs the cables and waves currently, I'll quote our current president. We have to go see Bill Gates and a lot of different people that really understand what's happening. We have to talk to them, maybe in certain areas, closing that internet up in some way. Somebody will say, oh, freedom of speech, freedom of speech. These are foolish people. We have a lot of foolish people. Holy cow, Eric. Please get home from your time in the UK safely. I'd love to help keep the conversation on this topic going. So if you have guests you'd like to call to my attention who can add dimension to our dialogue here, please do. Before we get started, I'm running a survey over the next couple of months to learn more about listeners of the show. If you're up for it, I hope you'll join us on our Facebook page slash no such thing podcast, where I'll leave a link. The survey won't take more than a few minutes, I promise and will go a long way to helping deliver the content you're looking for. That's facebook.com slash no such thing podcast. Enjoy my talk with Eric. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Um, let's not delay. Let's get into this. Okay. Uh, if that's okay with you, um, you you know the format and everything, so I don't have to give you a uh, a whole shtick about what we're doing here. Yeah, um, totally. So, um, so we're we're on. I am so excited to to uh, to have you with us all the way from Oxford. I can't believe you flew here from Oxford um, <laughs> to, to have this interview. on the airwaves. So you're at the Oxford Internet Institute right now. Can you just say briefly what um, do they call it? OII. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, tell us about OII. What 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 are you doing there, and and what is uh, the institution there to do? Yeah, of course. So I am studying a uh, master's degree in the social science of the internet, um, which I think maybe a few years ago, you would have gotten strange looks. And now they're sort of like a, oh, so you're going to like save us kind of reaction you get mm. from people. Because <laughs> um, as you, we will talk about, internet is not doing great. You are going to save us, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, I have my opinions about ways that we might attempt to be saved. Mm -hmm. um, 
<laughs> I feel like my whole life is attempting to be saved. <laughs> that's, that's like what I do. Right. Sure. Uh, and so the, the, it's a really interesting program. So it's sort of a little nerd herd in at the University of Oxford. I think they originally came together as sort of this research nexus between the social sciences divisions like political science and sociology and some of the like computer science fields, psychology, hmm. um, and, uh, and economics and to, to sort of address intersections of those particular fields and just online life. Um, whether it's, um, you know, like online news and media and misinformation and disinformation or, um, like online economics and the ways that even like in developing countries, things are changing with internet technologies or mobile technologies. So it's, it's a huge range of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, from that sort of nexus, they built out a, a little tiny master's program, which is, this very, um, sort of, uh, you know, as a, it's a cross section of all of those things. And it's really interesting. Can, is it okay to call it boutique? It's kind, of, it's kind of a boutique program. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's it's fair. It's like small, important, fancy. Right. Fancy, maybe you don't feel so much. Like, you know, I, I know yeah. you too well to feel like uh, you're at Oxford being fancy. Um, and right. and I, listeners of this show know you from uh, many, many episodes ago. Can you believe we're, we're approaching 60 episode, our 60th episode? That is awesome. Um, when I say our um, that's code for me. Right. Um, and the supporters of the show. So it, it's, uh, very much, uh, the organizations who have been involved and the many, many guests who have made it, made it happen. So, uh, but 60 episodes and, um, you joined us. Uh, so my point in saying that is this is, this is not your first dance. Uh, your experience at Oxford, comes after um, work at Unity, which is um, Monster Game Engine globally, um, and a stint, uh, which makes it sound small, but a really significant role. Stint is fair. (laughs) Significant role at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, which um, at one time was a force um, (laughs) and and will, will be again. Right. Um, so, so you have been around and, and I have so admired and, and, um, been excited about your path, uh, as you set off to kind of, uh, defend and, and fight for the things that you care about. Um, mm-hmm. one of which came out in a recent, uh, op-ed in the Washington post, which, um, is what brings us together today. Right. Um, and I was so excited to see this thing. Um, you know, it's always fun to see a byline uh, in the Washington Post by a a, uh, a, a friend ally. and colleague, <laughs> yeah, an ally, yeah. Um, as an op-ed. So you wrote on February 25th, or they published on twenty on the 25th. We need mm-hmm. a PBS for the internet age, um, mm-hmm. and I am so excited to talk to you about this. Um, PBS for the internet age is is a huge idea, and I think that just saying it out loud, people have to take a second um, to really think about what that would mean and what the implications are. So I kind of wanted to start with 
public broadcasting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, here from from your piece in 1967, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Public Broadcasting Act into law to spur the development of non-commercial radio and TV programming. "Quote that will be responsive to the interests of people." End quote addresses the needs of unserved and underserved audiences, particularly children and minorities. Mm-hmm. So um, talk to me a little bit about why this is significant in your mind and and connect, you know, draw that line for us between this moment in 1967 and where we are today. Yeah, so... Um... I mean, it's there's. I guess there's a few ways to talk about that moment because I think uh, the first is that was a really profound and an incredible thing that they did. That you know the Johnson administration did, and even before then, you had in the Kennedy administration. I, I mentioned it in the piece too. You had sort of this first push to establish sort of public interest media. Um, you had uh, President Kennedy's FCC chairman Newton Minow gave this really rousing speech in the 1950s uh, to a bunch of uh, private TV broadcasts, uh, you know, executives um, who were gathered in Washington, D.C. for a conference and where he declared the state of television as this vast wasteland. Mm-hmm. He said, we, we can do better. You know, TV can be this powerful force for creating, you know, positive change, for educating, for informing um, and and from that came a lot of the initial sort of FCC regulations around um, making sure that TV broadcasters were held to higher standards and that there would also come to uh, into existence uh, non non commercial TV and and later radio um, and part of that was you had. Um, coming out of the Public Broadcasting Act and the Johnson administration. The establishment of the corporate pop, uh, corporate uh, corporation for public broadcasting, um, which also gave rise to PBS and also NPR, um, and and these were sort of like new institutions to 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 say, you know, like media and and the things that we discuss in the media and um, the media's role in helping new generations sort of be educated and informed is is critical to democracy. Um, and if we want to do that right, we really need to put pe- you know federal funding behind it. We need to have like real regulations that support these things. Um, and 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 just a fun little tidbit that is astounding to me is uh, public radio was included in the Broadcasting Act by being scotch taped onto the end of it while they were just getting the legislation passed stop it so uh so you know npr would not exist or not exist in nearly the same format as we we know it today except that it was just sort of duck or uh, scotch taped on at the very end um stop and and so on you know it's this 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 thing where it's both this incredible huge thing that we did and also like so haphazard and we're so lucky that it just it just made it through yeah right um, so, so, so at, at the end of this piece of legislation, there was literally a piece taped on that said, oh, and, and the radio. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's incredible. Right. Um, 
and you know it's it's from from that i think you can sort of um i don't know to me it's also this sort of like can you imagine this happening today kind of thing because mm-hmm. it's it's kind of hard to actually imagine that we would do something that monumental mm-hmm. um and that um impactful for the future of media yep um and I don't know. I, I, I struggle with that because the piece that I wrote is sort of calling for this next iteration of this public broadcasting act of, to, to reimagine what public media looks like for the future. Yeah. And uh, the question of is that possible or what does that look like is, you know, I guess that's what we'll talk about. But that's yeah. the big open question. Yeah. There's a good case to be made that we need to do it. But can we do it is sort of the harder thing. Yeah, well, the the other thing that I found compelling about that quote that I read and and this history that you bring up is um, that that was Lyndon Baines Johnson, right? right. And um, so, not exactly like if you if you you know were to pick if you were to not know and pick you know name the president who brought public broadcasting into uh, existence. I don't know that people would pick LBJ, who was, I'm no, no uh, presidential, you know, historical scholar, but, uh-huh. um, you know, I know LBJ was a fairly controversial president, um, you know, with uh, topics like Vietnam many and, and yeah, many, yeah. many issues. Um, so I, I guess my point just being that, um, that it, we were able to make it happen uh, under a, a fairly controversial presidency and at a time of widely uh, felt uh, tumult, you know, right. in, ac- across many, many different sectors and, and sort of, sort of social um, issues. So, right. Um, so that's kind of fascinating to me too, um, right. because I think a lot of people are tempted to look at it and think, you know, not now, like this is not our highest priority at the moment. Um, right. but, but maybe it's actually exactly the time when we need to do it. Do you have a, a feeling about the timing? Uh, I mean, I think you put it well as like the fact that we're in this moment of uncertainty is, you know, it is so hard to have a meaningful conversations at a national scale or even locally about mm-hmm. the issues that we're dealing with, about all of these incredibly divisive issues. Uh, and, and that is very much a feature of a very poor, poorly structured public sphere for discourse and debate. And if you want to improve it, you need institutions that are dedicated to doing so, that are dedicated to making, you know, content and, uh, opportunities for for opinions to be shared in good faith and for people to be heard, and the internet does not do that well right now. <laughs> so, so like I think it is it is the perfect time and the most important time to do it. It's also, of course, yeah, it's like it's not on the top of people's lists of like what do we need to fix right now? Um, yeah. Just because, and- yeah, and and part of that I think too is we don't really have much of a discourse around media reform in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is uh, unfortunate. And it's I think it's partly a product of a media that has by and large just been governed by the First Amendment and has been sort of seen as this thing that is separate from government. Yep. Whereas other places like the UK, um, you have the BBC, which is this big hulking institution at the center of everything. Um, and that you know, makes it very easy to imagine 
what reform looks like when you have a big institution like that. And we don't quite have that. Hmm. What do you know? What what is the speaking of the BBC? What's their take on the Internet? That was that um, was an obvious piece of research that I should have done, but didn't even think of. Um, so the BBC, I think the the thing to note there is like they actually like were one of the pioneers into the Internet space as a public broadcaster. They were a little slow to it, but mm-hmm. that's to be expected. Um in the 90s, they, you know, started putting all of their news content online. They started to experiment with putting sound files online. And then later, before Netflix was a thing, they actually made a thing called iPlayer, which was and still is sort of their um, marquee video platform mm. where you can watch documentaries and shows. Um, and the BBC, much like public media in, in our country, they had this mandate to um do sort of public service uh in in three veins which was to educate entertain and um inform Mm -hmm. and and they have you know they're they are closely regulated and they are sort of tied at the hands a little bit by parliament in the uk because they have to be very nonpartisan. they receive a lot of funding from the government and so Mm -hmm. they're they're sort of always get it from all all sides you know they get a lot of criticism from from every angle because they're seen as either being partisan or being too sort of wishy-washy right um but in terms of their you know digital um presence you know they produce podcasts they produce shows they they have pretty tremendous reach and it's um great here's the downside though is even with everything that the bbc has which is far, far more than we have in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, BBC's entire budget is about like seven or eight billion total. Um, Netflix spent 13 billion total on content, <laughs> original content alone, not even engineering, just or licenses content. on licenses right. on, uh, or not licenses. Old content. Yep. Right. Uh, wow. just last year. So, you know, the, there's, there is a unfortunate degree of uh, misaligned scale mm. for, for even a powerful institution like the BBC against some of these platforms. Um, yeah. So, so, um, so while, while we're on it, um, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm curious about your, uh, I want to. I'll come back to the op-ed because there are some some great quotes in the op-ed, um, but uh, I'm curious about your favorite comments from the op-ed. I know you're a you're a fan of uh, of seeing what people how people respond. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a lot of things, but I think one of the kind of counterpoints that comes up, you know, whether it's just regular old uh, you know trolling or, but I, I do think that it's it's kind of like a um, what it's a it's a paradigm right that people think that PBS sort of has failed uh, in some way so so one uh, orange cub uh, you know some some anonymous commenter writes mm-hmm. even even Sesame Street bailed on PBS NPR and PBS <laughs> serve no function the market can't provide mm-hmm. um, I, what do you think about that and and what were the other of your favorite sort of 
uh, trolling ideas that that might come as counterpoints, but um, you know, you you might uh, take umbrage with. Yeah, no, I mean, the comment section on the Washington Post is uh, rambunctious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny because it's like you know, people think of the Washington Post as like, oh, that's sort of like sort of a liberally centristy type paper. Um, but because it's right there in sort of the middle, like it gets people from every which angle. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of like angry libertarians commenting on my piece that were like, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, and that's a real, that's a real current in American politics. That's, that's a real challenge for me too, which is a lot of people just don't think the government has a role period yeah. in funding any kind of media. Mm-hmm. at all you know that's it just sets off people's sort of warning signs that that's like oh that's propaganda mm. like npr is propaganda um and they're wrong they're super wrong <laughs> mm. <laughs> um and they're wrong for the following reasons which are one these institutions were set up with a very clear firewalls between them and the government not just institutionally where even like npr is not directly funded uh, or is very at a very low level directly funded from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is funded by Congress. Yeah. Mostly they're funded from local stations who are themselves funded by the CPB, which is funded by Congress. So it's, it's circuitous first. And then, um, you know, also like these organizations have very clear journalistic ethics and guidelines, and mm. they're very, they at least try to be pretty transparent about when they, um, screw up or when they um, are have a conflict of interest or all of these kinds of professional things that we expect of private media too, which frankly, private media often fails to do, uh, especially if not more so now with yeah. the rise of all kinds of sort of smaller outlets. Um, many on the right have absolutely no predisposition to adhere to any kind of journalistic standards. It's just a fact. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the Washington post piece, I think it triggered that kind of response. Um, and for the things like the Sesame street type comment. Yeah. So Sesame street a few years ago, HBO got the rights to basically, they get to air Sesame street well before PBS gets to air the new episodes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, that was, you know, a deal that, Sesame Workshop and PBS sort of struck out of the interest of, I guess, longer term sustainability for, for the show. Um, and like, to me, that itself is the, is sort of the, I don't know, like when, when people say that the market can take care of these things, um, the market did not make Sesame street in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably, you know, the market tends to be really iffy when about making sort of content that might, you know, that is sort of, uh, serving a purpose. That's not just tested against like, is this going to attract the right audience to sell the right things? Yeah. Um, and a lot of public media shows do not fit that mandate, that, that purpose. Um, and I think it's foolish to expect the market to be able to support that kind of content into the future. Yep. 
Um, not to mention, more importantly, much more importantly, the market absolutely fails at making sure that this stuff is available to every citizen. So if it's just on HBO, and if you had no PBS, you were just like, oh, it's free for all, it's the market. Well, HBO is not available to many of the people who we want to have access to Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. It costs money. So does Netflix. So does, you know, all of these streaming services. You can be like, oh, they're making amazing content. They're making good kids content. Yeah, but like, is that available to really low-income families who also have shitty internet connection? Mm-hmm. Not really. Um, that's that's a straight-up market failure. Yep. Or they'll say uh, Netflix is only whatever it is, ten bucks right. a month. Yeah, uh, but like that's like real food on the table. Yeah. No. No so, joke. Uh, yeah. It's also it's also uh, you know in as we're talking about it, I'm also thinking. Um, there's nothing that prevents Netflix from targeting, um, you know, targeting young viewers Mm -hmm. based on any demographic information they have about them. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, targeting ads, targeting programming, which means that they also control what they're consuming in a lot of ways. Let's say we did let the market sort of demand where I think part of what you're arguing for is that. Um, when you have a body that is in the public's interest, um, there is, uh, you know, we can, we can count on a higher level of rigor in thinking about what's, what's actually good for, um, for people to be consuming and, and, um, and when it is or isn't appropriate to use, uh, whatever demographics, are right. are coming coming through the the uh, the cables, right. um, et cetera. So uh, so these these two different things come up in your op ed. One many things come up, but two struck me. One is you could make the argument that um, that PBS for the internet is a is actually about journalistic integrity, mm-hmm. um, right? That this is this is actually about. Not having any one corporate entity own the the news you consume or the information that you consume, whether it's entertainment mm-hmm. or or um, news media, um, there's another that's about um, about kind of educational content and and uh, sort of re- retaining a, a certain um, a certain ideal about. Quality uh, about quality. Um, yeah. Do you think it's about m- one more than the other, or 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 am I missing one that's even more important than those two? So, I mean, and 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 this is sort of um, always, I think, been at the heart of sort of the public media debate, and it's going to be more so in the future. Is um, do yeah? Is is does does it does this purpose of this is the purpose of public media to raise the bar to make better content, make sure that everyone is making better content by having sort of high quality stuff exist that the private companies have to compete with? Mm-hmm. Uh, or is it to to serve everyone and to make sure that we're reaching everyone with something? Maybe it's, and, and um, I mean, I think imagining that those two are in con- conflict, I think is probably 
silly because <laughs> mm-hmm. you want everyone to be served by good things. Otherwise, what what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, you're serving everyone bad things or mediocre things. That doesn't sound like what we want in America. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess the other piece, though, that I think has gotten lost is it used to be that the public broadcasters had direct control over the mode of dis- distribution itself. So they had control over just beaming the airwaves straight into your radio or television set in your living room or, or, or kitchen. Um, and they have lost control over that distribution process hmm. uh, on, in the digital frontier or space, which, which is to say it is now controlled by these platforms that own the algorithmic space in between the content producer and the consumer. Right. And uh, even, you know, even like if you are, even if that process is not ads driven, like Netflix is not really ads driven, um, there's because they have the subscription model, they are still deciding what is relevant. They are the arbiters of relevance in our society for people who are consuming their content. And it's millions of people consuming hours and hours of content. It's a tremendous responsibility that they have no reason, no, no regulatory reason, no, no even stated ethical reason to care about choosing what is relevant based on some sort of public interest values. Um, it is purely what will keep you engaged, you know, read, um, uh, shit, I forget what the CEO of Netflix's name is, but I, he said this quote once, which was their biggest competitor is sleep. Um, <laughs> and you know, good for them, I guess, trying to keep everyone from sleeping, but like, um, you know, they're just, they're so divorced from thinking about what is in the public interest. Um, much less for pl- platforms like Facebook or Twitter or uh, YouTube, who very much are also in the business of making sure that you're clicking on things and buying things. Um, Reed and Hastings. Reed Hastings. There we go. I got the first name. I forgot his last name. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the that distribution process is something that is lost because it's 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 not at the forefront you know it's not sesame street it's not the thing people think of when they think of public media yep and it's also not really the thing people want to necessarily imagine their money going towards when they're funding their local or or national public media during a pledge drive they're like oh we want to fix distribution mechanisms so that we're not you know relying on private media or private technology companies to decide what is distributed um that's like a wonky conversation to have but it's now becoming fundamental to fixing the whole thing yeah um because you really it you know you can make all the high bar high quality content in the world and you can have a you know a plan that is to make it free and to not rely on ads to produce that content Mm -hmm. but if you don't own the distribution process what is you know what does it matter well, this has existed forever, right? Like, um, that's why there is a, a difference of genre between, you know, art house movies and Hollywood movies, mm-hmm. right? Um, arguably there's, uh, or, or 
you know, types of literature, types of music, you know, it's like you could, I think you could make the argument that over time there's, there's um, forever been a constant uh, flow of high quality, deeply meaningful content that never gets seen or heard mm-hmm. um, for that very reason. Um, right. And, you know, free market folks, I guess, would make the argument that, you know, if, if it was so worthwhile, it would be seen. Um, Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I guess we can. You know, we can. Uh, that's a debate. Agree to disagree. A, a debate to have. Right. Um, but here's the thing: if you wanted to have that debate today, mm-hmm. you would have that debate on what social media. Social media is so not designed well to mm. facilitate public debate. It is designed well to sell you things. Man. So even you know, the meta conversation around these kinds of conversations is already lopsided because we don't have a space to have good faith debate, right. um, even in these kinds of things where we disagree. So it's, it's, it's almost like, like, I don't know what they're talking about because like the free market has not given us the tools to even have proper debate about these ideas. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm right with you. So this, just this week, um, hopefully not as an April fool's joke. Uh, we're recording this during the, the week of April 1st. Um, yeah. there was a vote, the house of energy, the, the house energy and commerce committee, rather, sorry, um, voted 30 to 22 to approve an amended version of the save the internet act, uh, of 2019, um, there were a few articles that uh, pointed to this as, you know, a, a really good sign um, t- toward the the goal that you're talking about in terms of uh, net neutrality and and the like. Do you um, one, you know, do you feel like uh, the Save the Internet Act should it be actually uh, passed? Do you feel like it solves enough, and um, and what's what are the balance of issues that we still need to address? That the, this idea of PBS uh, for for the internet age uh, might get to that that things like this legislation just don't. Yeah, I mean, I so I think this is actually this is good because I think the, the it helps reframe sort of what I meant with we need a PBS for the internet age, which is in the context of laws like this sort of save the internet act, what you have is a lot of initiative that are sort of what I would call negative regulation, which that's not to say that they're bad regulation, but it's things where you're trying to control and you're trying to stop bad things from happening. So net neutrality uh, laws, uh, privacy protection laws, uh, potentially even, sort of initiatives like Warren is calling for, which are sort of break up the big tech companies, Mm. Um, Senator Warren. Um, Those are all really, really, really fundamentally important. I think those are all really like necessary. But in addition to those, what are we going to build? What are we going to make that sort of positive regulation or law, which would be creating things, creating new counter forces? Because my fear is... um, if you don't sort of make the alternatives, the alternative media tools and platforms um, and, or, or institutions to, to fund alternatives, um, then you're not really addressing 
uh, a, a vacuum that exists in our media eco- ecosystem, um, which is, you know, a media ecosystem that is largely controlled and uh, very Biased. dominated by the big platform companies. And is, yeah, and is also, even if you look at it structurally um, in terms of sort of left and right, what you have is the sort of large left and center media, which um, are more or less, um, there's actually a great book by a group of researchers at Harvard, which was called um, Network Propaganda. And they looked at sort of the ways that digital outlets shared links between each other Mm. uh, and linked to each other and also how users on Twitter and Facebook linked to articles. What they saw was sort of a a normal distribution of links um, across sort of the left and center Mm. part of the media ecosystem. So, you know, small number of people talking and linking to far left outlets, a small number of people sort of linking to sort of right and center right articles, and then lots in between. what you had on the right side of the spectrum was all of a sudden this very sharp skew towards the far right. So the right center, right and the far right are very heavily talking to each other, but they're not talking to the rest of the media ecosystem. Um, and so there's an imbalance there. Um, that's, that's also a, a fundamental flaw of a market dominated media ecosystem, which is fueled by platforms, which are also really good for polarization. Hmm. Um, so, you know, like what you want is in addition to these other things, how are we going to establish, you know, new kinds of media outlets, which do not have the same, uh, constraints that are sort of, we need to sell things. We need to link things on social media. We need to sell ads. We have to sort of participate in this sort of surveillance network that is these big platforms. Um, but instead can adhere to public interest values. They can be nonprofit, um, which is exactly what we did when we set up the original sort of network of local TV and radio stations. Mm -hmm. Those stations had no, requirement to need to sell ads um and they you know provided citizens with necessary information uh helpful information entertainment re- things relevant to their communities and that was really healthy uh and and there were even regulations brought by the fcc where the local boards for stations have to reflect the local communities so there's you know transparency and ownership over what those outlets create. It's not like, you know, random teenagers in Macedonia who are creating your news. Um, so like what I want to see is though, though they might be more reliable than some sources. They may be. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but, and, you know, like back to the point about like, Oh, but if the government is funding this stuff, isn't it going to be propaganda? Mm-hmm. Well, like Fox news is basically the most, uh, like blatant source of propaganda you have right now in our media ecosystem. Um, it's like, you know, like that's not, it's a private media company. So I don't, it's, these things are not one equals one. Like 
if the government funds something, it doesn't make it propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, if the government funds something and it's independent and there's community ownership and there's firewalls and there's transparency, it's going to be, it can be really, really good. Uh, and likewise, if it's just up to the private market to decide what you, the consumer, should be given, and if a good chunk of the consumer base is really hungry for just identity confirming content like Fox News shows you that just makes you feel like your team is under attack and, you know, you can demonize immigrants and you can sort of, um, you know, have all of this nonsense about um, whatever it is that is the populist message of the day then that's going to be what's sold and that's what's going to what's going to be put through the network and that's not any better than government sponsored propaganda in Soviet Russia or whatever it is you're afraid of like mm-hmm. <laughs> so um yeah that's yeah so it it depends on the government and it depends on how much faith we have in a system that we we as Americans could build um for creating checks and balances for that, which one could argue is kind of what, what we founded, um, not you and I, but, uh, sure. Some other people founded this country right. and on. we can found it again. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we can refound it. Um, yeah. I think it's really neat what, what you, um, that distinction that you make between, sort of regulating deficits versus proactively building assets. Um, Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Uh, There was, there was uh, electronic frontier foundation um, has a, uh, there's a post that went up called um, that the sort of headline, sorry, is uh, Mark Zuckerberg does not speak for the internet. Um, And it's all about this, Mm. this uh, times article that, um, he contributed a series of ideas for um, ideas for regulations on um, on content and and um, sort of protecting people on the internet. And it was it, it's an interesting post, and people should check it out. I will link to it in the show notes, or you can find it at eff um, mm-hmm. org. Um, but, but basically saying, uh, to, and, and w- anyway, what it made me think about is I think that if we focus on regulating what exists and, and regulating these, um, these platforms that have become enormous, I think it's going to constantly, um, it'll be sort of a Rubik's cube of problems <laughs> where, mm-hmm. you know, or, or kind of whack-a-mole in the sense that, um, and this has played out already, right? Like we, we you know, there are it platforms totally that have, have banned, you know, banned nudity and suddenly, you know, important historical yep. photographs can't be shared or, um, you know, uh, women who are getting together to, um, share, um, uh, you know, commiserate about, um, you know, stories of their pregnancy or, or, you know, uh, right. they get sort of pulled, pulled down from platforms. So, uh, it it totally has um, started to uh, unfold that way, and and I can't, I, you know, who, who am I? But uh, I can't personally imagine 
a situation where we could actually um, tamp down all of those scenarios without another one uh, popping up. I also right. don't don't trust, and this was part of the point of the post was, you know, uh, if we start trusting the heads of uh, these organizations solely, and it's not to not to I don't want to put a spin on this uh, comment that I, I don't trust. Um, you know, uh, industry leaders uh, right. as a categorically, uh, right. that's not true at all. Um, but I think if we if we leave it to this sort of deficit regulation orientation when it comes to the internet, I think uh, we miss so much. And I think that's that's a really interesting point that you make in this piece. That is, um, you know, this is about being proactive and being, uh, and in a way sort of organizing publicly, um, in order to, to voice what we think, um, mm-hmm. good content needs to be and looks like. So, um, right. Anyway, I'm, I'm right with no, you on that. No, no, no. Have- I mean, you raise a really good point. I think on the, on the whack-a-mole front, I think this is sort of the crux of it, which is, um, you, you know, unless, unless you allow for, alternatives that are that serve the public interest to exist and by alternatives you could imagine like a new kind of public media station which is digital first which does all kinds of you know digital content Mm. educational content training uh community engagement lots of stuff um and uh and is experimenting with new kinds of distribution too new new ways for citizens to connect with each other to Mm. get information to um do a lot of the things we think social media has to do and it and and that's just because we've been stuck with the same monopolistic platforms for a while that we're sort of in like stockholm syndrome about it mm-hmm. um then unless we we address that we're just going to be playing whack-a-mole for a long time and and you know like there's this quote from um zuckerberg who again he seems perfectly nice but also <laughs> like no, he should not be in charge of like the m- biggest information platform in human history, right? That's ridiculous. He's like some random guy who made like this hot or not face mash app and then like transformed <laughs> it into Facebook. It's ridiculous. Um, and he mm. said on the on Facebook's fifteenth anniversary, um, that was like two months ago, uh, this quote, which was, um, there is a tendency for some people to lament this change uh, to, and he's, he's referring to the existence of Facebook, um, to overly emphasize the negative and in some cases go so far as saying that the shift to empowering people in the ways the internet and these networks do is mostly harmful to society and democracy. Hmm. Um, and like, I don't know, you, you hear that and I don't hear the kind of I don't hear someone who's like really thinking hard about how specific technologies like Facebook, which are designed to do very specific things and are not synonymous with the rest of the internet as he sort mm. of characterizes it, um, how he is having an influence on the public sphere on, which is a you know big complicated thing. Yeah. And you know, like you take something like the case of Myanmar where there is, literal genocide still happening um and military involvement in um and and terrorism that's that facebook in myanmar is the default communication platform for most citizens because the country sort of leapfrogged to that state 
And also because Facebook offered free Facebook services and free internet services, if you just use Facebook, um, that they are very much responsible for the communication and some of the organizing of the, they're not responsible for genocide. That's crazy, but they are responsible for allowing it to ferment and amplify and be, you know, they're, they're to some degree for sure complicit. There was a UN report that said as much. Um, and so, you know, these, these people have a lot of power and they don't seem like they understand it, you know? So we need to use the government, which is our collective way of organizing and deciding these kinds of things should be different to make it different. Yeah. Really easy to say, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, but there's a case someone would make a case, right. That, um, that this has happened before, right. Like, uh, um, you know, that in, that it's happened in journalism, for example, right. That, Mm -hmm. that you have, uh, isn't isn't that was like uh, part of the phenomenon of of yellow journalism, right? Right. It's like um, you know that that all all media can be manipulated to serve um, a perspective or a interest um, mm-hmm. an interest um, and you know and how's this any different and. Um, and if it's not any different then the way that that all shook out is that, well, then you have, you just have competition and you have different outlets, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, truth becomes part of the competition of, uh, of what you sell, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we're the, we're the truthiest. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 uh, what do you say to that argument? Um, so yeah, so there's sort of, there's been sort of this drumbeat, especially with the fake news sort of moment that we're like in a post-truth crisis that like the the like um sort of uh you know we're losing the ability to know things as a society because facts themselves are so politicized Mm. um and there's some there's some truth to that there's you know there's a there's a actually a research project here which is the oxford computational propaganda project Mm. where in the lead up to the u.s midterm elections um, they found that for the first time um, that that they can tell, uh, the percentage of information that was circulating on Facebook that was false and junk news uh, was greater than the percentage that was professionally produced news. Um, it was like 25% to 19%. Um, and, you know, and there's like been research at MIT that shows like false news stories on Twitter are retweeted 70% more than true stories. Um, so one, there's, there's totally merit to the, we're in sort of this truth crisis mode. And then, and yes, there have been modes and issues like this forever. Like truth is never this thing that society agrees upon. It's not like a monolithic thing that we all sort of we find it and we've decided that we found it and it's found and we move on right um but the fact that these technologies amplify and even incentivize the creation of myths or disinformation like there's economic incentive to do this yeah um and and or at least for polarizing content then i think it's sort of like 
whataboutism. Like, uh, of course, bad things happened in the past, but right now we're dealing with this problem. Mm -hmm. And there are ways in which these technologies specifically make this worse. So we should not let them do that because mm. that's just the moment that we're in. Yeah. Um, we're never going to have like a truth-based society <laughs> where it's like everything is clear and we all know that like the scientific method is the way that like all decisions should be made. Yeah. Don't think that we even really want that. Um, there's plenty of things in life and society that, that just will never work for. Yeah. Um, so there's like that in between space where I, I guess it's just like, if you think that these technologies are causing more harm than just sort of the default, like society has some of this iffiness to it. And there's specific ways in which they are incentivized and the market is incentivized to make this worse. Mm. And we should fix those things. And I think it's pretty clear that that's true. So, yeah. One other thing that, that you made me think of that I wonder if you've had um, thoughts about is, um, you know, when when public television, for example, um, got started, there was a there was a particular charter on a part of a lot of uh, and I'm not an expert on public media by any means. But uh, mm -hmm. so someone someone should correct me if I'm wrong. But but um, there was a, a charter on the part of most, if not all of those public media stations, the smaller um, stations that feed into uh, the bigger um, mechanism that had uh, a, a, an explicit charter to accessibility so that so hmm. in other words, um, in other words, studios, you know, like you could produce a show. Mm -hmm. Right. Or um, or voice your opinion or whatever it was. And it was like your space. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, and at the same time uh, and and that was cause, I think, for a, a lot of people to to um, gain interest in the field of producing media was, yeah. you know, going in in the 70s and 80s, like people would go in and, and you know, create their had a, a public access um, right. show. Right. Um, in, if you fast forward to where we are now, there are uh, hundreds of millions of dollars being put into an effort to turn young people into producers of what it what is, you know, a, a sort of age of uh, code and algorithm. Mm -hmm. And um, but they're they're largely being you know we're trying to motivate them to do that without get, without really giving them um uh that kind of motivation the kind of mm -hmm. um the internet is yours and uh so i guess my my this is my long way of asking have you thought at all about um whether to uh, a PBS for the internet age also has a big role in changing that gap between those who know um, things like computer science and mm -hmm. uh, those who don't. Um, I think that's like a huge, huge part of it. Uh, BBC also has, I think, been a bit of a leader in this space. You know, they had their micro bit project, yeah. um, which I think had mixed results, but it was a, a pretty you know, good faith effort to sort of say, 
hey, we should make these technologies available to everyone. We should provide educational material to help students learn some coding and do it in a really accessible, fun way. Um, and you could for sure imagine that public media of the future has a role to play in sort of 21st century skills development and yeah. and and very much attached to that like you raise a totally great point which is like it's about making sure that the ethos of that training isn't just about hey you can get a job for doing this that's it's, yeah it's like it's a public interest mission you know you you can create things that serve uh, a purpose that serve a public interest purpose and public media should infuse that into the kinds of education that it provides. Right. Yeah. Um, I would, I would concur. Yeah. I uh, think that's a great idea. And it's not, it's not only, you know, I have to say it's not only our, our tack right now is not only, Hey, you can get a job for this. It's, um, oftentimes it's even loftier, which is, um, you can get, or, or loftier in a different kind of twisted mm -hmm. way, uh, which is like, oh, you can, you can get a job at Google for this, or you can get a yeah. job at yeah, Facebook yeah, yeah. for this. 100%. So, and that is, that is, I can say from, from, um, lots and lots of experience, um, that is a big part of, um, how the sort of paradigm for for how computer science education, particularly the motivation for computer science education, is being delivered right now. When you think about some of the corporate interests who have invested in in CS education, and um, that is not to say that all of that effort is in in any way, um, you know maligned um right it's not to say that everybody doesn't have a part in investing in this stuff you know it's like I, i'm not saying any of that and um and not knocking down the efforts of folks who have put it that way i think we've actually made that mistake in lots of different um in lots of different ways the way we sort of right. paint the picture of success i think has been a a, a particular you know, failure, failure of education over time. We've right. done it right in some cases, but wrong in a lot of cases. And um, so anyway, uh, part of what you're saying motivates me to think more about what a, a public um, system for the Internet age could motivate and change about the narrative for um, why producing through computation and um and data and uh, these things mm -hmm. is 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 about um, civic participation. It's about um, you know activism, et, et cetera, mm -hmm. and and whether we could create that narrative more credibly through a uh, PBS like system. So right. um, so that wasn't a question, but he, <laughs> here's here's my my last sort of where where I was hoping we could end up is is like let's talk about what it would actually take to do this. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, how do we get something like this done? I know that, um, you know, you, you're, you're not a, um, a, uh, a, a, a legislator yet. Um, right. But, uh, you have had an insight, like, you, you know, something about how, um, these things work. What do we need to do to, to put the wheels in motion to actually, uh, move towards something like this? 
Yeah. Uh, so I think I think there's there's sort of like three three approaches. One is uh, rich people will have to do it, which is a strong American tradition. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, like PBS was um, itself actually uh, um, sort of grew out of um, a uh, before PBS existed, there was uh, education, national education television uh, or something along those lines, mm-hmm. which was a Ford Foundation initiative and television uh, organization uh, to create educational content. Mm. Um, Ford Foundation is part of the reason that PBS exists. Yeah. Um, Knight Foundation is another really active one in the space of journalism that's funded a lot of sort of big initiatives to try and uh, support public interest media. Um, however, you know, I don't, I think you could imagine sort of like a few foundations sort of trying to tee up some of these initial like digital first stations mm-hmm. or uh, a, a new endowment for public interest media on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think though a systemic, more systemic solution would be um, in this wave of sort of big tech regulation, uh, a, a tax on targeted advertisement, um, which is actually a proposal that comes from a group called Free Press. Um, two awesome guys, uh, Craig, uh, Aaron, and Tim Carr, who uh, sort of put together this idea that we could tax targeted advertisement which is like the kinds of advertisement that Facebook and, and Amazon and others do. Yeah. Um, and that ad tax would produce, if it was just like a 2% tax on the revenue that they create from those advertisements, yeah. it would generate about 2 billion a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could put that directly into an endowment or the creation of some of this stuff. Yeah. Still not um, as big as Netflix. Not as big as Netflix, so you could ratchet it up to like five percent. <laughs> <laughs> but but a but a, a pretty impressive uh, start. It would a be good a, number, and yeah. considering the fact that the Corporation for Public Broadcasting right now only gets about um, five hundred million dollars in federal funding, um, which is nothing. <laughs> Uh, particularly considering, like I mentioned, BBC is like seven or eight billion. Germany, yeah. their public broadcasters are nine billion. Jeez. Canada is one point two billion with a population like one seventh of ours. You know, Germany and the UK have smaller populations too. Like we just massively underspend in this. Um, and so, you know, we, a, an ad tax would be really more, great. We have more tanks, though. We do, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> more a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, tanks being one of them. Um, um, so that would be one way. And then also like states could do more in this space too. Yeah. Um, there was a bill in New Jersey last summer that was a civic media, um, bill that was only 5 million, also tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, but the idea was to support more local journalism in New Jersey. Um, I, I I think the best opportunity is probably still going to be federal just to take the biggest swing, but TBD. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that about Jersey. It's one, just one more, one more way that all good things pass through New Jersey at some point. 
I have no skin in the game on the <laughs> is New Jersey I do. Uh, I a do. shithole or not. So <laughs> I do. That's, uh, I have for you. I have skin in the game. Uh, I am I am a proud uh, proud product. Um, and, uh, and I'm proud of the bill, no matter how, um, small it is, uh, you know, I think some investment is better than no investment. For sure. And that's my opinion. Um, uh, Eric, this was so fun. I could talk to you for, um, a lot longer about this, but, um, I also don't want to keep you for longer than I promised and it is late. Um, So I so appreciate all the thoughts. Is there uh, the last question I wanted to ask you? um, Do you want to plug um, in addition to your op ed, which we will point to? Are there um, books or other resources that you want to encourage people to check out if they really want to dig into this issue um, and Mm -hmm. and get get uh, get learn learned on this? Yeah. That is a great question, Uh, which is what you say when you don't have a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's interesting because this is part of the problem, actually, is there aren't there isn't a robust discourse around public media in particular. And like I said, and and reforming it or reimagining it, Mm -hmm. Um, I would highly encourage people check out Newton Minow's speech from back in the 50s. Yep. I think that in and of itself is a, is a great little token of history that mm-hmm. kind of sort of encapsulates why I think this is important. Um, I think um, there's uh, the book that I mentioned, Network Propaganda, is a really good primer on sort of why the media ecosystem right now is, is so messed up and mm-hmm. is so uh, sort of um, unbalanced. Yep. Um, and another great one that just came out is uh, Shoshana Zuboff uh, wrote a book called Surveillance Capitalism, mm-hmm. um, which I think is getting a lot of attention and is sort of a great sort of uh, like landscape view of why these technologies are doing bad things, even if they're not necessarily run by bad people. Yep. Um, so I think I think those are all good places to go and the the network propaganda one is you can also watch a talk by them online that might be shorter than reading the book just go to the berkman klein center and on youtube and search for network propaganda i'll link to it in the notes um eric martin from oxford i really can't thank you enough for uh spending time with us while you're at the internet institute and and uh I uh, can't wait to see when you get uh, back to the states, and and um, and I can't wait to figure out what excuse we have to uh, to talk again in the future. Um, yeah, I'm I'm uh, watching closely and uh, and cheering you on for sure. So uh, cool. thanks thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share. Find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. 
No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org.